The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. All right. Isaiah 24 through 27. That's where we're turning our attention next. We've covered Isaiah 1, Isaiah 4, 1 through 4. We jumped through chapter 7 into chapter 9. We covered chapters 11, 1 through 12, 6. What we're doing is, is walking through this glorious book as we're going to see this gospel book and uh, camping out on a number of high points where the Messiah, Jesus, the servant Savior, is focused on. And so now we come to Isaiah 24 through 27. God's desolation and recreation of His world or His garden city. And already we've seen this global reality focused on. It's all the nations that gather to the elevated Zion, the city, the world. It's desolation of the nations that God promises to bring in Isaiah chapter 6. How long, O Lord? How long do I need to proclaim, keep looking but don't see, keep listening but don't hear, until devastation comes? Indeed, this city that was like a garden, but that is now unfruitful, the city and the land will be wiped out. They'll be cut off and then burned and then burned a second time until all that's left is a stump. And then in chapter 11, we learned that that stump, the stump of Jesse, will grow up like a garden and it's going to produce a bunch of fruit. There's going to be nations gathered to this raised up, spirit-empowered king. He's like a temple that has the spirit of God dwelling on him. And those that are in him catch something, the presence of God. He's going to work something like a second exodus. Not something like it, that's what it will be. It's called a second exodus. He's going to work it and he's going to gather his peoples from all over. And his people. His peoples and his people. The nations, that is the Gentile nations and ethnic Jews, going to be gathered together under the supremacy of God, working through his servant, Savior. At the end of chapter 12 we enter into a very extended discussion of foreign nation oracles. Oracles against nations that surround Israel. They're enemies, but they're also the mission field. And at the culmination of those foreign nation oracles, we come to our text. Not working today. So we come to our text. You can see it right there at the beginning of chapter 24. After we've walked through the nation oracles, which we're going to just touch on briefly in just a second. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. It shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with the master. As with the maid, so with the mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. There will be all things equal. Judgment on all. No one will be left untouched. The earth shall be utterly empty, utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken. Notice it's, he, it will be this way because the Lord has already established it. He's purposed it. We've got past tense contrasted with future tense. He has spoken, therefore it's going to happen. That's how God's purposes stand. And this enters us into this extended unit of desolation and wasted city and then the destruction of death. Turn with me to chapter 25. Verse 8, He will swallow up death forever. 
And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. He will do something. He has already established it. It's purpose throughout all time. He'll swallow up death forever and there will be no more tears. What does that sound like? Revelation 21. That, this is the text that John has in mind. He's citing this text. That's where we're headed. New heavens and new earth. Images of that reality where death will be no more. And then it goes on to say, it will be said on that day, verse 9, behold, this is our God. That's what we just sang. We've waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. The song will be sung when death is no more. And yet something happened at the cross. An intrusion of global judgment comes at the cross. And in the resurrection, all of a sudden, the image of eternal death, as Lewis says in the first book, or in the second book, in the Chronicles of Narnia, at the stone table, something happens. A deeper magic. That if one would be willing to sacrificially, substitutionarily offer himself on behalf of a rebel, the eternal death will be reversed. Everything heading this way, all of a sudden it will start to go backwards. And what was eternal death will become eternal life. That in a very real sense, as we've already seen, especially in Isaiah 11, but in Isaiah 2 and in Isaiah 9, because the Messiah has come, because the servant Savior has risen, there's an all-readiness to what we're about to read and a not-yetness. That the future songs can become present songs for those who've been saved. Verse 3 of chapter 26, very familiar verse. Look forward to going into it. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. This is the song that will be sung when death has been conquered. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Indeed, he's like a city. In whom we find refuge. Verse 26, chapter 26, verse 1. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation around us as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. And when desolation hits the globe, it will not hit those who are in the city. The Lord is our refuge and our fortress. A very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the waters roar, the mountains fall into the heart of the city. See, there is a city whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. The Lord is within her. She shall not be moved. The nations are raging, burning, and yet where God is is perfect peace. And if we can find ourselves inside that city, there's a refuge amidst every storm. That's where this text is going. The desolation and the wasted city is where we're focusing today. Death's destruction and God's exaltation in chapter 25. And then, notice chapter 26. It begins with, in that day. You see that in chapter 26, verse 1. In that day. 27 says the same thing. 27, 1. In that day. 
The Lord, with his hand and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Anybody know where that text is echoed? Pardon? Job? Uh, the Leviathan is mentioned in Job, but that's not what I'm thinking of. That's not this particular judgment text. It's linked to it, though. The twisting servant, he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Revelation chapter 20. The same text that Revelation 24, uh, verse 22, is used in. Sorry, uh, Isaiah 24, 22. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. That's Revelation chapter 20 as well. So we're going to be jumping around here, trying to understand tough texts, putting them together. But the big picture is God wins. God's exaltation, death's destruction, in that day. God's protection of His remnant, in that day. God's slaying of the enemy, then verse 2 of chapter 27, in that day. God's full deliverance of His people. So there's going to be this overview here of a great salvation and overcoming of death. And already in the book we've seen this is associated with the Messiah. That's when this kind of victory, this global hope and help comes in the context of the work of the Messiah. And so, then we move on in that day, in that day, in that day, and the New Testament's going to pick up these texts and unpack them for us. Thanks, bro. So here's where we're focused today. The earth's desolation and the wasted city. Now, this doesn't just jump out of the blue after chapter 12. What we get is a whole set of declarations. Set 1, set 2. Beginning in chapter 13, 1, we just start to walk through these foreshadows of coming judgment on those who've been rebellious against God and held animosity against his people. Babylon, Philistia, Moab. Those in whom Israel put their hope, both with respect to Cush in the southwest and Damascus, Syria, in the northeast. Then Egypt. And then we come back to Babylon, Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem gets thrust into the midst of these oracles against the nations. And then Tyre, and it's right there at the end of Tyre that we come to chapter 24 and a declaration that judgment is coming on all. So here's our passage. It's a big, big text. What we're going to do is I'm going to read through it together. I've got a basic structure up here that I was able to establish working through the text. And we're going to make observations and raise questions. Notice chapter 24, 1 through 3. It's all future-oriented. And the verb forms point in this direction. The Lord will empty the earth. It hasn't happened in Isaiah's day, but it's coming. He'll make it desolate. All the earth. He'll twist its surface, scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. Everyone will be leveled out. The earth shall be utterly empty, utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken. And then in verse 4, there's a shift. The verbal forms change, and it begins to reflect on what it will be like in that day. 
as if it's already being experienced. And then we'll return to the future orientation at the end of the chapter. So from this point on, verse 4, I think this is now a depiction of what's going to be felt, smelt, smelled, experienced during this day when God has brought global judgment. And as we wrestle with this, we're wrestling with the reality that at one level, global judgment hasn't come upon every, everyone. And yet at another level, the justice of God that has been worked at the cross has not only saved all the elect, it has also damned all the reprobate. Already. Those who are not in Christ, already in the purposes of God. Revelation 13, 8. Those who have been identified with the mark of the beast, rather than who bear the name of the Lord and of His Lamb. whose names are written in the book of the life of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, those whose names are not there, what the cross does is declare the death of all. Yet we don't know who those people are. And we're not certain who all the saved are, whose names are already, since the foundation of the world, written in the book of the life of the Lamb that was slain. So missions is absolutely essential. It drives us. But there's an already but not yetness to these texts, I believe. So let's just see what it says. Let's read the first paragraph, 4 through 6. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. So there's this sphere called the earth. And it's underneath the inhabitants, that's us. And because of the people, the place is defiled. It's like a sanctuary that's gone bad. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. That is, the earth is supposed to be the place where Yahweh's presence is magnified. It's like a cosmic temple where God would be put on display, where He would reign. And the fall has twisted it. Notice what it says. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. So, what is this everlasting covenant that we're talking about here? Any reflections? Thanks, bro. Let's see if it works. So, thoughts. Transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the covenant. That language sounds familiar, but what's it referring to? Initial thoughts. Pardon? Covenant with Abraham. Now, the covenant with Abraham works itself out in two stages. First, he's to become a nation. We call that the Mosaic Covenant. Then, blessing is to reach all the world. We call that the New Covenant. But it's still with one man and one people. Here it says... They have transgressed the laws. Who's the they of verse 5? What suggests everyone, Adrian? The earth and its inhabitants. So the inhabitants of the earth have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse doesn't just devour a people, it devours all the peoples. 
So what covenant are we talking about? An Adamic covenant. Now, Adamic, that is the... We take a person's name and we make it into an adjective. The Adamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant. So in all the covenants except the new covenant, we take the human head or mediator of that covenant, the one who, through whom God orchestrated, orchestrated the relationship, and we take their name and tag it to that covenant. So Abrahamic, Noahic, sorry, Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, new. The tricky thing is that the Old Testament never mentions explicitly an Adamic covenant. The first time the term covenant shows up is with respect to the Noahic covenant that is with all creation in Genesis chapter 6. And yet, this seems to assume something. That everyone who is in Adam has somehow violated laws. That, That there's this global impact that has happened. If you want, you can turn to Isaiah 43, 27 really quick. Isaiah 43, 27, listen to how God talks to Israel. Remember that Israel in Exodus 4, 21 and 22 is called the Lord's firstborn son. Remember how the nation is called the son of God in Exodus chapter 4? Prior to that, Adam... There was an implied connection that he too was the son of God. In Genesis chapter 5, it says, So Adam, sorry, so God made man in his image, in his likeness he made them, and Adam gave birth to a son, a son in his likeness, in his image. That what it means to have imageness of God, likeness of God, is related to sonship. So if Adam was created in the image of likeness of God, there's a sonship pattern there. Adam was the first son of God. And Luke chapter 3 tells us that explicitly. In the genealogy of Jesus, it takes it all the way back to Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now Israel, as a nation, is like a new Adam. They are to be and do like Adam was to be and do. Imagers of God. Like Adam was created outside of the garden and then placed into the garden sanctuary of God, Israel was created outside the paradise, the promised land, and placed into the promised land. And like Adam, just as he was kicked out of his paradise, Israel too would get kicked out of theirs. And there'd need to be a newer Adam, a last Adam, a better Adam, who could represent not only the people, but represent the world, who could in himself represent ultimate humanity. In contrast to the beastly kingdoms of the world, he would be the ultimate son of Adam. Now, in Isaiah 43, 27, what we read is this. 43, 27... Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. I think that's talking about Adam. Your first father sinned. He was in a covenantal relationship with me. And in him, everything went bad. We see it again in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. Here's what it says. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant... There they dealt faithlessly with me. Like Adam did, so Israel did. There's a a relationship that's non-biological. It's an elected relationship of obligation. There's two parties, and there's commitments on both sides, and Adam transgressed his side. The whole garden was open to him. Just one tree. Don't eat from that tree. Everything else, freedom. And he and Eve ate of that tree. But he was the representative head. That's why we call him head versus helper. He's the representative covenantal head. And so 
in, we're either in Adam or we're in Jesus. And right here at the culmination of all these foreign nation oracles, which are merely representative of the rest of the world, judgment, judgment, everyone is in sin. And the text says, the whole world lies defiled under its inhabitants. And if this is the location, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, that God has determined where He wants to make His name known, His presence realized, then there's going to have to be, just as there was in Canaan, a house cleaning. What is true on a microcosmic level of Canaan, there's nothing in the text that suggests that the Canaanites were more wicked than the Edomites. It was the land of Canaan that God had chosen to make his earthly, temporary dwelling place. And so, it had to be cleaned out. Similarly, the globe is the vision. From the very beginning, it was God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, commissioned them as priest sons, royal sons, What are they called to do? Fill the earth, multiply, subdue, have dominion. That's kingly language. And then they're called to, before Eve is even there, Adam is commissioned, and then Eve will be his helper to this task, to, I think the ESV says, work and keep the turf in which God has placed them. To serve, work, serve, and guard the sacred space of God. And as they serve and guard the sacred space of God, they're supposed to see the garden ever increasing, filling the earth, multiplying, subduing it. The vision is that that tabernacle, that temple where God's presence is known, where humanity operates as mediators of that presence, imaging Him, would ultimately see the garden expand. That is, that the temple would expand until the glory of God seen in human lives would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The vision is a global vision where the entire earth would become the temple of the living God. And this text tells us that all of that sacred space, which has been claimed, has been defiled by rebels who have twisted and broken the covenant. Therefore, A curse devours the earth. And what we're going to see, just like in Romans chapter 1, where God gives them over to their wickedness, gives them over to their debased mind, gives them over to impurity, what that means is that sin is not only worthy of judgment, sin is judgment. And that's the scary part of sin. It's why none of us in this room should take sin lightly. Because it's not only worthy of judgment, and oh, God hasn't hasn't gotten me yet, He hasn't struck me down yet, and we become complacent of His patience. Instead, we should fear and tremble when we sin, because this may actually not simply be the sin that is worthy of judgment, this may be the sin that is judgment, and God all of a sudden as punishment, won't let us get out of it. It will continue, and we'll go deeper and deeper and deeper. This text is going to be filled with sin, and I think it's part of the curse. And so if we see something in our soul that's saying, oh, I hate this sin, God, forgive me of this sin, turn and plead with Him that He might move you from the context of judgment into the context of help and hope. Now, in saying all this, I'm not denying at all no condemnation. I'm just wanting us to feel the weight of their... We're not supposed to take grace lightly. He purchased not only our justification, Jesus purchases our sanctification. And we should cling to it and work out our salvation. Work it, work it, and yet in a way that doesn't replace grace. Work out your salvation with fear, with trembling, for it's God who works in you. It's God working in you. That's big God theology. And also big God theology is you work it out with fear, 
with trembling, knowing that anything good that's going to be flowing through my soul is purchased by Him. Look at how the text continues. The wine mourns. It's a weird way to talk. But you know what it's saying. There's no fruit on the vine. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. There's no joy. There's no partying anymore. Deep in the soul. The mirth of the tambourine is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city... Oh, we've just moved from world to city. And I think the city is Jerusalem. What is true of Jerusalem is true of the world. Their sin represents the sins of the world. And what I think we're going to see is that the restoration of the city is the restoration of the people who have gathered there. Remember, in Isaiah chapter 2, all the nations in the latter days will stream to the mountain. Isaiah chapter 11, the Spirit-empowered King will lift up a banner. He will be the signal saying, come this way. And both the Red Sea and the Euphrates River, this way, Red Sea, Euphrates River, will become channels so that all the peoples in the known world, as Isaiah is envisioning it, can all gather to the one city. And everything else will be desolate And the city will become everything. The presence of God will fill the whole earth, is Isaiah's vision. In Isaiah chapter 4, we saw how the glory cloud rests on the city, and all the redeemed are there, and everyone else gets destroyed. All that is left is the city. But right here, the city is a place of anguish, of brokenness. The wasted city is broken down. Every house has been shut up so that no one can enter. This is what will happen. This is the vision that Isaiah is having. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. All that the world found joy in is gone. And the doctrine of Christian hedonism says, even when all else is gone, joy remains. But not here. This is absent of joy because they're absent of God. They're under curse. They may even think that all is well, but it's not. Desolation is left in the city, the gates are battered into ruins, for thus it shall be in the midst of the earth, among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices, they sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west, all of a sudden we've switched gears. There's a, a rejoicing that's going on, When there is no joy anywhere else. It said in verse 13, The city will be desolate in the midst of the earth, among the nations. All the nations surround a devastated city. But now, in verse 14, there's joy. And we see the only commands in the whole chapter now. Give glory. In the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, implied, give glory. It's added in the text. Glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. There's someone listening. And in the midst of the ruin, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the curse, there's pockets of praise rising up. 
all over. As this morning, Pastor Kenny's message on Acts 1.8, he started, started to act as though, where's your Jerusalem? Where's your Samaria? I'll leave that and just say, in Acts 1.8, I really think recognizing we're not Jerusalem matters. Recognizing that the Spirit of God entered in at a time in salvation history and began to expand a temple called the people of God in Jesus. The Spirit of Christ resting on His church from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that's where we find ourselves. And yet the mission is not accomplished because there's still ends of the earth places that have not been touched, even in our backyards. And yet what Isaiah hears, I mean, what it would be like to be a prophet. He's called a seer, right? That's the first thing. Before they were ever called prophets, they were seers, identifying that they could see into the present in ways that most people could not see. Meaning he could look into a heart and identify sin or holiness. The rest of the world might not have eyes to see, but a prophet, all of a sudden he's able to recognize, look into the soul and see what is real in the present. But he could also see into the future. And you get a sense like it's just kind of being unpacked for him. He sees the earth in desolation brokenness. It looks like nothing is left and all of a sudden songs begin to be sung. It looks like everything is over. Death has won. Judgment is the end. And all of a sudden there's pockets of voices rising all over the planet. Men and women, boys and girls, who see the signal, who recognize the banner, the Messiah has come, and begin to walk toward a new Jerusalem. I noted Hebrews chapter 12 already. You have not come to Mount Zion. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion, which is above. You've already come there, says the writer of Hebrews. Pockets of praise rising up from the ends of the earth. Verse 16, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. I say... I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed with betrayal. The traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the windows of heaven are opened. We've just left this glorious picture and we're back to the trouble. The foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it. The curse. Indeed, it falls away and it will not rise again. That's the first Adam. If anything is going to come beyond death, it's going to have to be like a new creation because the old creation ends in this. And it will not rise again. What Jesus does is new. And He's the start of a rebirth. A new garden. So we've got this pocket of anticipation in verses 15 and 16. It's surrounded by this this anticipation of hope. Pockets of praise. 
And if I'm the reader among the nations who've just been cataloged here, representative here, this five and five, and I recognize I'm part of the enemy. I'm part of, the, of those who've been cursed. My sin is not only worthy of judgment, my sins are a judgment. My struggles with lust, my retaining of bitterness, my quick-tonguedness toward my kids in sharp tones. And I recognize this is not how it should be. And there's pockets of praises in a world of death and judgment. I think this text is supposed to awaken within us a longing to say, God, let me be part of those pockets of praise. Look at the end of our passage. On that day, when pockets of praise will rise amidst the desolation, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and He'll punish the kings of the earth on the earth. They'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They'll be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded, and the sun ashamed. Then, then... For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. Let me just read from Revelation 20. And... Lord willing, pick up here next week. Because here's where lots of questions begin to rise. It says, in that day, when there's global judgment, in that day, the enemy will be thrown into a, a pit, and after many days, they'll be punished. Right? Then, the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. Difficult to see the rays because you're in the midst of darkness. The fires of smoke are cloud, uh, in, in the midst of a war are clouding out the, any lights from above. Or you're in the midst of death and glimmers of light as representative of life are dying out. The Lord of hosts reigns. Because He reigns, judgment's going to happen. But this window of after many days. And the question becomes, is this future reality? Or is this present reality? Are we to anticipate a time in the future? <laughs> this gets so thick. Are we to anticipate a time in the future after this age of the church, once God has returned to earth, a time on this planet where the prisoners will be put into a pit and after many days they will be punished. Or is that something that is happening right now? That in light of the darkness that came at the cross using this exact imagery, that there has been, in a very real sense, a definitive destruction of the enemy. And with that, the light of life and praises already rising around the globe. So that, I'll say it, the millennium, that's Revelation 20. That's where we're about to go. Is the millennium future or is it present? That's what's at stake, trying to understand the text. How, how are we to figure out, are we to read this 
all future, like Isaiah was reading it future? Or is there, in this text, just like there has been in every other text that we've seen, an alreadiness because the Messiah has already come? And how are we to understand the thousand-year reign of God, of, of the Son, the thousand-year reign of Christ, who is already seated at the throne, who already has all authority in heaven and on earth now, already? So let me just read Revelation 20, and then Brother Rick can ask his question, and we will... Uh... So here's Revelation 20. 1 through 6. Now just keep your ears open for, here's Isaiah 24, 22. They'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They'll be shut up in a prison and after many days they'll be punished. Isaiah 27, 1. In that day that we're talking about, the Lord with His hand and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing ser serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. The whole Bible Summarized in this, kill the dragon, get the girl. Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and, the and a great chain. And it's, he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him up for a thousand years. Threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Is that now? Or is that future? The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. In that day, this is Isaiah 27, verse 12, In that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, one people of Israel. That sounds like 2nd Exodus from Isaiah chapter 11. The alreadiness. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And then, Satan's defeated, great white throne judgment, new heaven and new earth. So, I came into the text saying, I'm going to go through this text this week, and I realized that this is big. I didn't see all this before. This is big. Regardless of where we see the text take us in the coming weeks, I don't want to take you there. I want the text to take us there. That's going to be my hope. There's amazing hope here. And there's a lot of reality that should nurture fear. Not fear of intrepidation that moves us to run. The kind of reverence and awe that moves us to stay. But we have a big God who will bring judgment on the wicked. Hell exists because God is a good judge, not because He's a bad one. He is faithful to punish sinners. And our hope in this room is only because Jesus took that wrath on our behalf. Since we therefore have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath to come? Romans 5.9 So, the wrath has been poured out on the Son so that the wrath won't be poured out on you and me. 
We've got a world living in blindness, having no clue that this kind of wrath is coming. May it just work in us compassion and a missional fervor. And may we find ourselves among the pockets of those praising. Isaiah heard them. The seer looking into the future. All of a sudden, in the midst of the desolation, smoke and dead bodies everywhere. What he, see, what he hears is, is songs of praise beginning to rise up all over. Have you ever considered, honestly, he may have heard your voice? He's getting to see what's actually happening. He's, he's going into the future. Is your voice among the choir? May it be so. Father, I thank you that you are a big God. These are big questions, but there's so much absolutely clear in your text. You take sin seriously and you save those who humble themselves and latch on to your Son. So with corporate voice, we just come together and celebrate that you have given us a Redeemer who came not to be served, but to serve. And He's continuing to serve us day in and day out. You, a God working mercy morning after morning and working justice, declaring because the Son took your wrath every morning, You will send forth your goodness and mercy to follow us. Spark within us songs of praise. Thank you for your favor. Thank you for your help. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for you. Behold, this is our God. You have saved us. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.